I'd like for you to open your Bibles to two places. First is Hebrews 12, and secondly is 1 Peter chapter 1, which is like four or five pages over to the right. I'm going to begin with 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. We're cutting in on a, a sentence here and a thought. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Would you agree with me this morning that concerning Christ and one verse of Scripture that we just spoke, that in order for the glory to be realized, suffering would come first. That whatever it was that glory identifies or whatever is meant by the glory that follows, the only way you could get there was a difficult way. I say difficult because it uses the word suffering. Now, I don't know a lot of people who are willing to suffer for righteousness sake or suffer in this life to achieve a spiritual goal. Not many. Now Christ did. And let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking, this is the only way you can do it, but this is the instructions. Looking unto Jesus, the captain or the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's like 1 Peter 1.11, the glory that followed, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame that went with it, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that must have meant a whole lot to him to do that, to sit down at the right hand of God. Because in order to do that, he was willing to go through a whole lot that the Bible is full of describing to us the cost of what Christ did and the meaning of what he did. And it's used like this, and this is the title of the message, the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. The picture that you get of Jesus is that he came to this earth with a mission. Well, that's what the Bible says over and over. He came for certain various reasons. But he had a mission. There was a reason that God sent Jesus to this world. And there was a reason that he was willing to give up all the things that we live for, to give it all up in order to qualify to reach that joy that was set before him or the glory that would follow his sufferings. He was willing to do that. I don't know if you've ever stopped. I'm sure you probably have, maybe not a whole lot or maybe very intensely, but have you ever stopped to think about what was meant by the joy that was set before him? Because whatever it was, was really a big deal. He was willing to suffer shame, the cross, 
the contradiction in verse 3 here, the contradiction of sinners against him, the railing against him, the insults, the innuendos, the rumors, the falsehood that was leveled against him, all the wrong things that was said about him, all the lies and the deceit about Jesus. He was willing to take that. He was willing to be spat upon, to carry a cross, to hang on a cross. Boy, the joy that was set before him was a big deal. It must have had tremendous bearing. But the Bible said it was aforetime prophesied that he would do this. And I want to know what this joy was that was set before him that he was willing to do all that he did for it. Joy is a wonderful thing to have. Not everybody has joy. Joy, as I will say at the end of the message, is probably one of the ways that you can measure yourself as to how close you walk with the Lord or how much he means to you by the kind of joy that you have in this life. Because this life is not for you. This life is against you. There's a prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. All the entanglements of this world that turn you away from God or lure you away from God and all the ideas that, that are given to people to set church aside and it doesn't mean anything and I can do that when I get older. And all these things that come into your life and mess things up and bring spots and blemishes the Bible speaks of. Till one day we're grown and we set our find ourselves sitting in church really not knowing anything about God, not having learned much in all those years we attended church, our life is not affected by a whole lot of what we've ever heard. So there's something that has lost its meaning to us that we have not pursued with great intensity. And consequently, it shows by a lack of joy. We have this joyless society that we're in. People are mad. People are mean. Everybody's out to get somebody. Well, the Bible predicted that. Heady, high-minded, lovers of self more than lovers of God, haters of God in the last day. The Bible said that. All this is because people are seeking the wrong things, and there's no hope in this life. You set your affections on something, and then you go do it, and the great vacation you wanted to take, the car you wanted to buy, the whatever you wanted to do, and then once it's done, you're back to zero again. And you have nothing to be joyful about anymore because it's done, it's over. People are angry. People are not kind. They're not nice. It's a time of rudeness that really is coming into the world, and people don't have any joy. Christians don't measure up so well either. We fight amongst ourselves. We argue. We complain about this, and we cry about that, and we mumble about this. Just like people in the world, we talk politics as bad as they do. And I think, where's the joy? Maybe something about what God is offering us and, and what the Bible gives us to seek after, we've never seen it, and there's never been any kind of joy set before us like it was set before him for us to really want this and to pay whatever price we've got to pay, a cross, a suffering, shame, insults, rejection from the world. Maybe we've never seen it in the way God wants us to see it so that we want that more than anything else that we're willing to sell all that we have in order to buy this one field. Remember the story? Found a, a pearl of great price or found a field and sold everything to buy. It was so important to have it. A great pursuit in life. 
But joy comes from God. Joy is not something that you have because you got a bonus. That's happiness. Happiness is okay. But it goes it up and it comes down. You're happy, you're unhappy. But joy is something that comes from God. It's called a fruit of the Spirit. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah speaks of. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But it comes from God. It's the joy that he brings. Jesus spoke about asking and receiving that your joy may be full. It was important for him, for you, to be joyful people. The redeemed of the Lord shall return with singing, the Bible says. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's what is given to us as a testimony to the world. That's what we're supposed to have. The psalmist said, in thy presence, Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Would you believe that this morning as we speak, that where God is, there is joy? Amen. That he is a joyful God? That doesn't mean he walks around, you know, with a giggly grin all the time. It's just that joy like peace, they go together. Usually when you have one, you have the other one. And there's something that settles in your heart by which you are relieved, the stress is gone, and you're sure and certain about something because you're joyful. There's a smile on your face. I looked in the Bible, countered just a few of the words like cheer, cheerfulness, joy, joyfulness, rejoicing, rejoice, gladness, glad. And really it was 587 times and I didn't do it well. There's probably over 600 references in the Bible that you're holding about joy. And the source for joy, as I've said, and the source of joy is God himself. In fact, when he brings his kingdom to the earth, and we are in it now in that sense, he said the kingdom of God is not rules and regulations, you know, meat and drink, but the kingdom of God is righteousness, Romans 14, 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. That's his kingdom. That's kingdom personality. That's a kingdom testimony in his kingdom. And listen at this. I want to read you something in the Psalms about the Lord and his joy. It said, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoiceth and with my song I will praise him. Did the psalmist have a reason for rejoicing and worshiping and praising God? You know what? He had taken a step in the direction God told him to take. This is the way walking in it. And when he began walking that way, God helped him. He assisted him. God moved into his life and began to make things work the way God and his word says they're supposed to. And they begin to work because a man aligns himself with God. And therefore, his joy was increased. Oh, he was exuberant. He said, with my song, I will praise him. So that's the way it should be because we should have those kind of joys. 
How about the Nehemiah 8.10? Have you heard the one? The joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. Strength. Then you would have to agree with this, that a person who has joy, a joyful Christian, is a strong Christian. If you are strong as a Christian, it means that your strength comes from the Lord expressed with joy. The joy of the Lord, as we sing it, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And then we got all the other little verses that amplify strength. I can do all things through Christ, therefore praise the Lord. Wouldn't you praise the Lord for that? If God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I'll bless you going out, bless you coming in. Whatever you put your hands to, I'll cause it to prosper. Would you smile? Or would you go, oh, you going to do that? You might sit there with your arms folded and say, hmm, because it's not real. But I can look around the room and every now and then you would quote the Bible about things. You can see a smile come on some people's face because they've been there, done that, and doing that, going there. Praise the Lord. He's put a new song in my mouth. Not that same old song of yesterday. He put a new song in my mouth. It ain't no rock music. It's just good stuff. Our strength is so sure and steadfast that God has made it a promise to us, and we can have it. I can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and I'll be rejoicing. In fact, what about when troubles come and things are in turmoil? What about then? Can you rejoice? We're warned in the book of Proverbs about like going to a, a funeral home and acting silly. Hey, don't worry about it. Praise the Lord. How you do? That's not the time for that. You say, well, I'm joyful. You say, well, you're silly too. A fool's mouth and his laughter is often heard in wrong places. Joy doesn't have to always be a big grin on your face. A joyful person has a good report. Something good comes out of his mouth because he's learned something good from the Lord. But what about when things aren't going well? What if he loses? What if the economy goes shot? How many of you can find the book of Habakkuk? Matthew, Mark, Luke, no, Habakkuk. Hosea, Joel, Amos, then you remember orange juice and candy. Remember that, orange juice and candy? Hosea, Joel, Amos, O.J., Obadiah, Jonah, candy, yeah, M&Ms, almost m and but Micah, and Nahum. And when you get past there, you're getting real close to Habakkuk. Turn over to Habakkuk then. I want you to read with me in chapter 3 and look at verse 17. We sing this song and we've heard it sung. And there's a message here. It's a message about joy and a reason for joy. Though the fig tree should not blossom, Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olives shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. Now, that sounds pretty bad. If you're like Israel was, they were an agricultural society. There were farmers and herdsmen, and this is doom. The fig trees, no figs, no grapes for wine. The yield of the olives shall fail, no oil. The herds cut off from the fold, no cattle, no paycheck this year. And bad, something's really gone bad. A storm came through. The economy went flat. Somebody robbed, cheated, and stole, and we're all suffering. What are we going to do? Doom, dee, doo, dee, dee, doom, dee, doom. 
we're going to take turns crying. No. Look, what's verse 18 say? Yet. Does your Bible say yet? Yet what? Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. And the world will think you're a village idiot if you start rejoicing when you've lost everything. I've seen people who've lost everything. It's not fun. It's not funny. You see them on the news or their houses are burned out or floods that come through and just ruined everything. I mean, ruined it all. And I've seen people cry and weep and tell the media how they've lost everything and don't know what we're going to do and seen other places, different kind of person. They say, well, it could have been worse. We're well and we're healthy and we're intact and we'll just start over. And I don't care who you are or how sour anybody's attitude is. When they see somebody look at something they would dread themselves to face and they see a smile on their face or a good report, well, we hate all of this, but we'll just start over. You have to think, what do you have? What is it that is lodged in your heart, in your personal constitution about how you live? What is it in you that makes you look at failure and all this loss without crying and complaining about it? What is it? I hope it's Jesus. Because he said here, though the fig tree should not blossom and all of that, verse 18, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And the Hebrew words are quite physical. One word means to spin around like a top. To be joyfully exuberant. Woo! I don't think you would do that. I mean, I think it just means that in your heart, this is not the end of your life. Your life didn't end when tragedy happened. I know tragedy is tragedy, but that's not the end of life. It's not a reason to kill yourself. It's not the end of hope and dreams. It sure is a sad and sorry moment in your life. You wish it would go away. It doesn't go away. It is there. You got to deal with it. But there is a tomorrow coming, and you've got to walk in your tomorrows. And if you're walking with the Lord, he gives you reason to smile and overcome and make it. And you can. If you're a joyful person. Look at the 19th verse. 19th verse, he said, the Lord God is what? God is my strength. It's not my bank account. It's not my house, it's not my job, it's not my retirement, it's not my savings, it's not anything, it's the Lord. God is my strength, that's why I'm strong, that's why I stand and don't fall, you would say. That's why I don't give up and quit and turn back and throw in the towel, because there's a strength that's given to me. I have no strength, but something was given to me that has enabled me, made me able to deal with things. It's the Lord. Therefore, there's joy in your life. You can smile. You can help others. You can encourage other people because you're a joyful person. Remember this about joy? Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. See, when the Bible talks about the joy that was set before Jesus, it doesn't mean that he didn't have any. He was trying to get it. He'd already said in John 14, 16, and 17, like in John 15, he says, these things I have spoken unto you, verse 11, he said, these things I have spoken unto you, that your joy may be full, and that my joy might be in you. He wasn't seeking something he had given them later on. He was speaking the word then. He said, I'm speaking these words to you, that your joy may be full. 
It's all about faith. It's Romans 13, 15, joy and peace in believing. And he gave us the word to believe, and he said, believe this and you'll have joy. My joy, I'm the living word. And when the word abides in you, I abide in you. That's why I'm your strength, and that's why you can call upon the Lord and make it and overcome all this stuff in your lives. All the things we fret about. All the things you sit around your kitchen table and fret about can be overcome. Everything, all of it. God has left nothing out of your life that you cannot conquer. You can either bow to the thing and lose your joy and become that kind of a person, and you run into them all day at the store. People are mad, angry, can't, not a nice thing. I'd like to have a Coke, please. All right, anything else? I still remember the time, I've told it before, let me tell it again. I remember the time in New York, coming back through the state of New York. Yeah, I know I'm from Kentucky. I said, I'd like to have a cup of coffee, please. She gave me a large Coke. <laughs> young lady, nice looking young lady. Let's see, coffee, Coke, they don't even rhyme. <laughs> but I wasn't gonna say it like that, because you know, I was alien. And I said, no ma'am, I wanted a coffee. She said, you said a Coke. I said, well, no, I said a coffee. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me ask you, why is that girl like that? Why would she have, from that day on, why would she have a bad day the rest of the day because of a cup of coffee? Why? Because that's the way she's allowed herself to be made. That's how she works. And her mom and dad tell her to do something, she don't want to do it. Got another bad day coming. Plus her parents are going to have a bad day now because of that mouth. What's wrong with everybody? These people probably go to church on Sunday morning. Maybe a pastor's nightmare when they get there, but they go to church. What's wrong with everybody? Is there nothing set before us that supersedes what we're looking at? Is there not something in our lives like with him that we can overcome and, and have joy? What do you suppose the joy was that was set before him? What was it? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? We know he already had it. What was he here for? What was his mission? What was the big deal? What was it all about? Turn to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The Bible said this about Jesus. In Psalm 40, it says, Lo, it is written in the book, I have come to do thy will. The same Psalm, Psalm 40, that talks about in the first few verses about being planted in out of the miry clay and all that. Well, it ends with saying that, lo, it is written, I have come to do thy will. So let's realize this, that the joy that was set before Jesus was the will of God. You agree with me? And what he set his face like flint to achieve was the will of God. That he came to do what he was given to do on the behalf of somebody else. He didn't need to be redeemed. He was God. He didn't need joy. He's the author of joy. But there was something that would be accomplished that would make joy. It would be something that wouldn't have to be done again. Something that needed to be done on the behalf of mankind. 
Notice in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, what a price that he paid. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Did Jesus suffer? Did he have to? It was part of the deal. Part of the plan. And verse 9, being made perfect. That doesn't mean that Jesus was not perfect. The word perfect here means finish his course. Complete. It's often translated mature but it also means to reach your goal. He finished his course. He did what he came to do. And being made perfect, he became. Let me ask you all some questions. Could he have become what he became if he had not have gone through what he went through? No. Boy, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Something so wonderful that God wanted done. He had one chance to do it, and that was with Jesus Christ, one time. And he came to this earth in a human body and was set on a course to accomplish something that the Almighty God wanted accomplished. Only Jesus could do it. There's no room for error. He can't sin, not even a little sin. Everything has to be absolutely perfect because God is a just God and must judge all sin. And he set his course in this life to do his Father's will. And he never said, he never did anything wrong. And the Bible says in verse 9, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey. It does not say this. It does not say that Jesus became the author of salvation to everybody that joins church. Everybody that joins church and gets water baptized or sprinkled or whatever they do today. But he's not the author of salvation to people who, who put in their time and are religious. Does it? What he did, he did for those who would obey. That's what your Bible said. He became the author of eternal salvation, not to members of a church, but to those that obey him. This is why churches get quiet and don't like teaching, because when you begin to teach what the word obey means and how the word obey is applied, everybody understands that. that's a simple word. Everybody knows what obey and obedience means. And when you take spiritual truths that we've heard and set them before religious people and say, this is what you must do. Didn't Peter say that we must obey God? Now, we don't have any options. We can't say, oh, well, nobody's perfect and he didn't really mean it. Yes, he did mean that. If he didn't mean what he said, he lied to us. He told more than one person, go and sin no more. Can you do that? See how quiet you got? Because, oh, nobody. That's what he said, go and sin no more. If, he's, if that's impossible, then he gave her something that wasn't fair. Gave them something to do that wasn't fair. You know, religion looks for options, for preachers that give options, for churches that have options, that don't hold you to certain things. You can live any way you want to and you're all right. That's not what the Bible teaches. You'll go to hell living like that in a good church. He said, this is the way you got to walk this way. That's why you teach this way. And people don't like to be taught. Preach lofty themes and make me feel good and send me home ignorant but happy. Because those two words, again, that are dominating dead people are comfort and happiness. 
Make me happy, make me comfortable, I'll come back, I'll put a nickel in your bucket. But you start nailing me to the cross, you start making clear all of my shameful sins as a Christian, I'm not gonna come back to your church. And don't take me wrong when I say this, I might not even want you back. We've never had a big church. I prayed years ago, Lord, give me a little church. It's been a time or two since I said, well, you can add a little more to it if you want to. But the joy that was set before him, he suffered and he paid a terrible price. Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Why would he die for you? What did God see in you that would make him want to buy you back? You know, Adam sinned. We're all sold into sin. Why would he care? I can't see anything about Tom Hamilton that, as I've known him, I know him well. I look at my life and I see absolutely nothing I'd give you a nickel for. My old life. Wouldn't even want you in my presence because of that attitude, that corrupt thinking. I know what it's like to be corrupt. Really, really, really corrupt. I know what it's like. Been there. Why would he care about me? I'm doomed and destined to perish anyway. I lived all through college with a lung disorder. I thought I had cancer. I thought I was dying. Actually, I realized later I was, slowly, but died. And, and I thought, well, do your best while you can. Maybe something good will come up at the end of this thing, but I knew there's no chance of me getting saved. It was too bad. No way I could be saved. Too honorary. Tried it two or three times, sat in a Christian church, sang in the choir, and I just trashed it all. I thought, there's no way I could be saved. No way. And one day it happened. You know about my testimony, well, that, but it did happen. It did, and when it did, everything turned completely around. I have a reason now, if I never get a nickel, a dime, never get healed, if I was sick the rest of my life, I have a reason to rejoice every day. Every day. I don't think a morning that I've ever sat at my breakfast table, I don't think I've ever begun without starting out and said, I want to thank you first for my salvation. Thank you, Jesus. You got to smile when you say that because you're going to heaven. You rejoice because your name is written up in heaven. How did it get there? Well, it couldn't have gotten there unless what we're talking about happened first. Jesus had to do something for Go to Isaiah 53. Well, how many more verses are you going to turn to? Probably quite a few. So you turn to Isaiah 53 so you can see it in your Bible and not just mine. I outline in chapter 53 of my Bible in yellow, you know that highlighter, yellow? The different verses and the words in verses that describe what he had to do to get to that joy we're talking about. Notice verse three, he is despised and rejected. Your Bible says something close to that. He is despised and rejected. Sorrows and griefs, ends verse 3, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, verse 4, he bore our griefs and our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
you know, the contradiction of sinners against him. That's what we thought. He, he just got what he deserved, being an imposter. He's telling everybody he was God. He got judged for it. That's what we thought. Verse 5, but he was wounded. For my miserable transgressions, he was bruised for my self-righteousness. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and by his stripes, those things hurt. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted like a lamb to slaughter. Verse 8, he was cut off. At the end of verse 8, he was stricken. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. The word means sickness. He bore it. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Listen to me. Jesus never did sin. And those people who say when Jesus hung on the cross, he was all of those ugly things that they said about him. Jesus was never sinful. He was a sin bearer. How do you believe a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement? There were two goats, you know, the one that was sacrificed and one they let go in the wilderness, like bearing away, taking away your sins. How do you know the scapegoat never sinned? But he represented sin, and in type, he was sent away to show us that when Jesus, the Lamb of God, the offering that God gave for man's sins, because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sins, but the Lamb of God could. And he came and freely, the Bible says, offered himself without spot unto God. And such a holy sacrifice he was that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, pure and holy, and on the basis of it, was willing to forgive everybody that would come to him after that. Because he was a lamb. No need now for bulls and goats anymore because this lamb paid the price. He was a sin offering. And you know what? I'm glad he did. I am glad that he did. Because if he hadn't, we wouldn't have been here today. But did you notice how many times these words that describe Jesus describe agony? When the Bible says that Jesus loves you, let me tell you this. I doubt if your parents would love you this much. Nobody loved you like Jesus. In this world, I don't think anybody ever loved me like my mother. I got kids and a wife and everything else, but a mother's love is different than anybody else's love should be. Today, women don't want kids today. They have an abortion because they don't love kids. They don't love anybody but themselves. But true love, not the word without natural affection, which is what that other thing was, but true love is the love of a mother for a child. In fact, God compared his love to a mother's love. Remember that? He said, a nursing mother could sooner forget her suckling child than I could forget you. There's a bond between a mother and her child that she'll fight all she's got for. She'll give up whatever she has for her child. But it doesn't compare to the love that God has for you. He said, I've graven you on the palms of my hands. He loved you so much that while we were ratsy sinners, he had a plan. He said, Jesus, I want you to go to the world. You do this. And what you will do will tear this middle wall of partition down between man and God. You will become the mediator between God and man so that lost man can now approach God. 
and be saved. And that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. I hope it means a lot to you because that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in all the world. That Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on the behalf of other people. We call that vicarious. And to demonstrate his righteousness, God raised him from the dead because he wouldn't have raised a sinful man from the dead, but he raised Jesus from the dead, signaling to us the price has been paid. You can be saved. And the message is clear throughout the Bible. The joy that was set before him was so much that he was willing to do it. I mean, he was willing to pay the price because of you. Now, what about the cross? Have you ever heard of the teaching that says we should take up a cross daily? You know what a cross meant to him? I ended the message last week by saying that before there's a cross, there's a garden. It was for him. The Mount of Olives, across from Jerusalem through the valley over there on the hill and the Mount of Olives. Why was he wrestling? Why do you suppose Jesus wrestled? The words that describe him are intense words. It was such a strain and a stress on this man in the garden that he's on this rock praying. And then he turns to his disciples and said, pray. Can't you pray for one hour? I never saw him interrupted any other time in his life went by prayer. What was he praying about? What was the big deal? And it got so intense, the Bible says in his prayer, and what was before him, he was sweating and blood, I guess his blood vessels burst. I mean, he was striving against whatever it was he was going to face. The cross is going to be an agonizing moment, whether the cross was just a big pole or whether it was as we see it. And they're going to drive these spikes in your feet, and you can't raise yourself up because... The nerves in your feet, or if you've ever had feet problems, you know what that's like. And you're going to drive these spikes in his hands or wherever they drove him. I'd say his hands. Just what Jesus showed Thomas, wasn't it? They didn't show him his wrist. He said, look at my hands. He's going to hang there on that cross. They're going to mock him and spit on him. All of his friends forsook him. His mother was there. She was there. They all others left. And it must have been a horrible, horrible time of suffering while he, he made a decision over there in that garden with all that time, and he must have wiped his face off, and he was ready to go after that. He's like a lamb led to the slaughter, never opened his mouth, never complained about anything. They beat that man's face. They hit him with their fist. They grabbed the hair on his face and jerked his hair. Isaiah describes says his visage, his picture of what he looked like was impaired. And they beat that man's back until the meat came off of his back with those things. Then they threw a robe on his back and mocked him, gave him a horse weed. We'd call it a horse weed, some kind of a reed. And then put a crown of thorns on his head to mock him as a king. And probably took that stick and knocked those thorns in his scalp. What would you have done? If you had 10,000 angels that you could get out of this, what would you call them? Well, it wouldn't have wanted me doing, going through all that. I would have probably called some of them. Not him. You see, the only way you can make it 
is for him to get there. And while what you're going to see of this man getting beat like this and weakened where he couldn't hardly that cross, somebody had to help him take that cross. This man was beaten like a dog, was mocked and spit upon. And the Bible said he endured the cross and despised the what? Shame. Shame. They followed him because of who he said he was. They wanted to see if he'd come down off the cross. He said he was the son of God, didn't he? Well, let's see what he does. Maybe we'll see something good today. They just knew that these criminals and outcasts were tied up on a hill and they died. Nobody cared because they were no good. They treated him like that. And you know what? He went through it. He did it. Did he cry out? Of course he cried out. Did he cry out on the cross? He did. I thirst. He went through all of those kind of things for people like me and like you. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Did he bear a curse? Turn to Galatians 3, will you just for a moment? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us. Who is us? That's you. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the rest of it say? Being what? Being made a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22 and 23 in the end of the law. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Did he hang on a tree? They called the cross a tree. Did he? Was he considered a curse? It was a loathsome, cursed way to die. The worst way that people could die was the scoundrels. That's the way they died. It's a curse. Were we cursed? Well, now, come on now. Were we under a curse? Because if we weren't, why would the Bible say he bore our curse? We're the ones that should have been hanging on that cross. We were the dogs in this life. We were the one who deserved nothing but death. And he bore our curse for us. Why? For one reason, he loved you. Why would he love me? I don't know either. But he did. And what he did was how much he loved you. He could have gotten out of this. He himself said, could I not call? Could I not call angels? I could, but this is why I came to the world. And man, I think of the, the awfulness of what happened there. And remember then he cried those three words, it is finished. Being made perfect, it is finished. The curtain ripped between the holy of holies and the common man out here. There was no longer anything between us and God. It is finished. He finished his course. He made it. You see, these are the things that the joy set before him. The first joy that was set before him was restoration back to his throne. He said that in Hebrews. He would be set down at the right hand of the Father. And the second one here is that he finished his course. And the finishing of his course means that several things happened on our behalf. One, he said the prison doors were opened. 
Because see, we were all in bondage. We were then like the world is today. Nasty, ornery, with no way of escape. Nobody in this world has any hope of another world after this one. People are living like fools without regard to if you died now, where will you be in a minute? If this car ran over the road, wrapped itself around a tree while you're jiving to some little stupid song, where would you then be after you die? Where would you be? I don't know. But don't you think you ought to find out? Is there something else? Is there anything else after this life? Or is this all there is to it? Because if there is another life after this, and there is, there's two. One up, one down. And you're living a life telling God how you want him to judge you. By my life, my life is a testimony to how I believe and what I think about you, Lord. All of our lives are like that. We disregard, we disobey, because that's us. Or the impact of what he did and how God brings that focus of what he did into our life and what it meant and how would a man die for a creature like me and pay the awful price he paid for me and humble me and put me on my face and ask for God to forgive me. You see, I was in bondage. The first sermon Jesus ever preached, he quoted Isaiah 61. He came to set the captives free, to open prison doors. We were all in prison. We were ruled by sin. Sin did so easily beset us. We were creatures of weakness, all of us. The devil only had to snap his finger. We would take off crying or take off running. And Jesus changed it all. Would you follow me in three verses of Scripture here? So important, so wonderful for us. Look in Colossians 2 and verse 13. And you being dead, talk about you, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he made alive or quickened together with him, having forgiven you most of your sins. Oh, does it say all? Oh, I'm sorry. Having forgiven you all trespasses. What about that nasty sin of yesterday? Did he forgive you that? Did he? Look at verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, that was the law, the legal law that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, because he fulfilled it. Notice verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, who would that be? That'd be the devil. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, probably referring to the cross. He spoiled. You know what spoil means? It doesn't mean make a spoiled child. Spoil is to take what your enemy had when you whip him. When you defeat your enemy, you take his goods. That's called your spoil. That's your gain. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. As you go to the right to Hebrews 2 and verse 14. This is what he did. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... He also himself took part of the same. He became like us, in other words, that through death, what will he do? That he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. 
and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what I just said a while ago. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him, was became necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He did it. Reconciled, restored back, brought back. We had wandered away. We were gone. And he reconciled us. You know how he destroyed the works of the devil. The devil can't keep you anymore. The devil has no rights to you anymore. There's a lot of evidence of his work. He has no right to do it. You let him do it and he'll do it. Whatever we bind on earth, whatever you declare illegal and unlawful on this earth as a representative of God, an ambassador, are we not his children? Whatever you declare illegal and unlawful, heaven will too. God watches over his word to what? You've sent it up to him, he'll make it work. If it includes putting the devil under your feet, he'll cause it to happen. But if you allow, whatever you allow on earth, heaven will allow to. You permit the devil to run over you, you don't do anything that God's given you to do with, then God is silent. And we holler at God in the church. Why doesn't God do something? Look at all the shame and the sorrow in the world today and all the suffering and dying and the killing and the unrighteousness and the squalor and the mean people in this world. Why doesn't God do something? He already has. Just an indifferent world doesn't want to apply what he gave us to apply to do something about it. We just want to passively sit around and and figure we're good enough for God to do something for us. But there's more to this than that. Look in 1 John chapter 3. Keep going to the right. you got to like this. If you don't like this, you need to come forward. He that committed sin is of the devil. Uh-oh. He that committed sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. Notice, here's a joy that was set before him. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Does the devil come to kill and steal and destroy? Does he? Then what does Jesus come to do? That you might have what? Life and have it more abundantly and not be knotted up with stuff stupid things in this world and grumbling and complaining and whining and acting like you don't know what you're going to do. If such and such happens in the economy, what are we going to do? Quit saying that. Find out what the Word says. What does your Bible say? That's the only thing you got that you can be sure of that God will do. Nothing else is as sure as this Word. Find out what the Bible says. And if somebody says, well, what does the Bible say about your situation? You say, well, I don't know. Then you haven't listened at all. All these years, you haven't paid attention to anything. You haven't memorized nothing. Nothing's lost in your mind. And Jesus knocks on the door. Ain't nobody home. That's why he said in Psalms chapter 1, he says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. He shall be not bound. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water 
Leaf always comes out. Fruit is always born. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Psalm 1. Been there all his years. Jesus made it possible, folks. That wasn't ours until he did something. But he broke down that wall. He made it possible for us to be forgiven. And I praise God for that. But in closing, one more thing. Set before him as something that would be vital and necessary to bring about the end of the age was the church. A mystery. It was hidden. It was in the Old Testament. We didn't see it. It's revealed to us now. A church. What is a church? Well, it is something that begins with a new covenant. A new testament would be established, but it would only be established if Jesus realized his joy. That God would establish upon him, upon this solid rock of Jesus Christ, he would establish his church. Did he not say that? And what is a church? Well, a church are called out believers, assembled together to do various things and so forth. But these are born again believers that have turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. We have him in common. And when we all get together, that one common bond, we're all different, but we all have him in common. And the same Jesus that is in me is the same Jesus that's in you. And trust me with this, the more we die to us, the more he lives in us. And the more he lives in us, the more in one accord we are going to be, the more the Spirit of God will bring unity into his church. Jesus died for us to do what we're doing. Let me show you a couple things and then we'll close. Turn to Zephaniah 3. Can you find it? Zephaniah. Pages are real clean back there. I want to begin with this about his church. He is going to dwell in his church. Where two or more gathered together, Jesus said, I will be where? I will be there in the midst of them. Is he here this morning? Where two or more gathered together, he is there in the midst. How does he view us in Zephaniah 3, 17? The Lord thy God, we sing this song. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. Well, is he or not? What a mighty God we serve. You ever sing a song? Well, is he? Is he or not? See, I want a response. More. I, television preachers get responses all the time. No, no. Does he or not? Is he mighty? He is mighty because he has triumphed. He stands as victor over sin, death, and all the works of the devil. All of that has been defeated. He said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And this is what he does. He brings this message. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. What will he do? Does that verse say that he will save? What else will he do? Will he joy over thee with what? Singing? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his... 
Love. All right, now, take your finger out of there where it's clean and go to Ephesians 2. Let me put a verse together with that verse. Put these two together. Ephesians chapter 2, about his church. I like this. This is so good. But it's challenging, too, because of what it says. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a heavenly congregation. Now, has he done this? All right. Let's go to the end of the chapter. Verse 18. For through him, that's that middle wall partition broken down. He's this mediator between us and God. For through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, that's the church, the whole building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together in a habitation of God through the Spirit. Does God abide in this kind of a gathering? Does he not want to manifest himself? And over you read in Hebrews, he said, in the midst of his church, he will sing. Well, how's he going to sing unless we sing? Did you know that spirit of praise comes from our Lord? That heaven is full of praise. In the presence of the Lord, there is joy. That there is a continual, constant, never-ending chorus of angels that sing before the Lord. That even when they had that tabernacle in the wilderness, the Levites who had no inheritance, their sole job as a whole tribe, their job was to serve the Lord. And what some of them did was wash the pots. That they did all that work in. Some cut firewood. Some made the fire. Some made garments. And some of them were singers. And they sang all day long. They had musicians. And all day long they sat there and they sang to the Lord all day long in shifts. God's going to be praised. But he's not going to be praised by joyless people. Because coming in and singing, Holy, 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 Lord God. All, you can sing all you want to. There's no joy in your life. No joy in your song. Jesus is going to sing in the midst of his church. He said, he will rejoice over us. He will joy over us. He's glad about us being here. Did you know that? What a terrible price he paid for us to be here and fold our arms and, and, and take for granted. I'm not saying you are, but allow me. Take for granted what he's saying. What a horrible price. No wonder God draws a narrow line when it comes to salvation. A really narrow line. The life of Jesus is not going to be treated with contempt by anybody and get by with it people that play church with preachers and whoever else, all these people that are playing church and acting a role out of kidding nobody, they'll be judged. They will say, but we prophesied in your name and Jesus said, I never knew you. His life is going to be treated with utmost dedication or you won't do anything at all with it. God's church is a holy thing. Living stones being put together, fitly framed, he says. 
is supposed to grow into a holy temple. In Ephesians 4, each joint, everywhere this church is put together, each joint has something to offer another joint. Each person has something to offer another person. We are required to edify and build up and promote each other and to help each other. That's what we're supposed to do. I haven't seen much of it ever happen either. I don't know if we've ever really obeyed the Lord and believed all of this. But it should be like this. This is what makes a church a glorious thing. You can be sure when he presents the church to the Lord, it's going to be a glorious church, isn't it? Don't you think that he saw this would be? And it was worth all he had to go through to die so that whoever is going to qualify and pay the price, that it's going to be one glorious coming together, and they're going to worship and praise him with all their might? Jesus is going to be glorified by somebody. And say what you may, first, second, and fourth stanza is not really glory unto God. It's just singing. You can go home and sing. You go home and sing songs, but worship together with like-minded brethren, focusing upon the one who made it all possible, the one who deserves the best we got, a sacrifice of our lips unto God. We will be like that. If we see all of this, if we quit looking at the Bible as just a bunch of stories, you know, Jesus died on the cross, the angel rolled the stone away, and he was raised from the dead, and Easter Bunny came, you know, until we quit looking at religion as just an activity that's in decent people's lives. And we look at this, this is our life. I had an awful thought this morning before I came out here, awful thought. I'm going to close and tell you about it. Don't really want to. But, you know, I was sitting there on the other side of this wall here, and I was meditating about coming out here. And it was like, wasn't a voice, just my words, just thoughts. I said, you know, there was a time when you ran. You know, the race that set before us. I'm not talking about jogging. There's a time that you ran. And then you allowed things to slow you down. And if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself at a standstill. And when you start standing still, you start looking around for other places to go, other things to do. And you're not running anymore. And I thought, oh God, don't let us come to a standstill. None of us ever, never. I've been there. I don't want to go back there to where religion has no meaning anymore. Christianity doesn't affect my life anymore. I want the very reason that Jesus died, that all these things that he has brought to us, all the victory that he's promised us, and all these thousands of things he said that, that are ours, I want that to be life. I want to live that. Whether anybody else does it, I can run if you walk. If somebody says, well, I don't want to run this race, anymore. I'm going to run it. You know, I've seen <laughs> old men run through town. They're not running. They're just talking, talking about stocks and bars. This ain't running. This is just tippy-toeing. I could do that. I guess I could. Running is stretching it out. Running is huffing and puffing. Running is pushing yourself. Running's not fun. I, people say, oh, I love to run. No, you don't, because you've got that ugly look on your face all the time you run. <laughs> I've seen them run them down the road. There's no joy on them faces. But anyway, may God cause us to see what he did that what he did for us 
is to continue with us. He had a joy that was set before him and a mission for his life. You have a joy set before you and a mission for your life also. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Cause us to see how wonderful an experience you have given to us that all the times of difficulty and turmoil only force us into you. As the psalmist said, Lord, teach me thy way that I may walk in thy truth. And only you can unite our hearts to fear your name. These people before whom I stand are your people. They're not mine. They're yours. They're sheep. They're Christians. They want to be if they're not. Sometimes we lag back, Lord, and we don't run. I ask in the name of Jesus that you would just bring this week more conviction into our life. More of what is necessary in these last days to be what you want. Teach us to run. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.